G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. From the very first series of Twista, we've charted out the changes in employee share ownership schemes from the good before 2009 to the bad after 2009, and now new laws are taking effect, and startup entrepreneurs around Australia are asking how those changes will be affecting them and their businesses. So we're dedicating this entire show to answering three questions. In the first segment, we will explore the basics of employee equity. What is it and why would you use it? In part two, we will explore the new rules regarding employee share schemes and see how they affect taxation. In the third segment, we'll learn how employee share ownership schemes can affect your ability to raise capital and bring investors on board. But then in our final segment, Twista will chat with someone who has guided their startup through an employee share offering and will be sharing some of their lessons learned. So it's equity and employees on this special episode of This Week in Startups Australia. Regular listeners will know that this is normally where I mention the sponsors for this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This episode is a little different. It's an experiment. The content for this episode was developed in concert with the episode sponsors, Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills. But... That doesn't mean this episode's just a great big ad. In fact, there is no advertising in this episode at all. This episode is dedicated entirely to educating Australian entrepreneurs about doing employee share schemes the right way. And yes, Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills, they're probably the folks you want to call when you need advice about that. But that's as close as we'll come in this episode to any advertising at all. I am not an expert on tax. I am not an expert on law. I am not an expert on employee share ownership schemes. So for this episode, I am joined by two folks who are. Peter Dunn is a corporate partner at Herbert Smith Freehills. He's worked with a number of Australia's leading technology companies, including Atlassian, Campaign Monitor, Invoice2Go, CultureAmp, Canva, Tyro Payments, and Unlocked. We've had at least half of those on this show. He advises on a range of corporate issues from fundraising to exits. Peter is joined by his colleague, Toby Eggleston. Toby is a director at Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills, the associated tax practice of Herbert Smith Freehills. Now, Toby and Peter assisted the federal government and the Australian Tax Office on the laws relating to options and share plans for startups and the standard form documentation, which means we basically have the two right people here in the studio today. Peter, Toby, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Mark, thanks for having us. Pleasure. Okay, let's start with the basics. What is an option? Mark, at its most basic, an option is a, a right granted to, an, in this case, an employee to get a share in the company at a future point in time. But it's not actually a share. No, and that's that's kind of a really important distinction, particularly for founders, uh, because their, their core equity uh, is kind of is critical. It's such a valuable asset. Options can be used as a great way of, of incentivizing the workforce without giving away shares up front. Uh, it is, and that's a very good distinction you make. Uh, uh, an option is a right to get a share at a future point in time. And if you think about it, a growth journey a company wants to go on and wants to engage its individuals, its core staff to help it get there, then it's a sensible way to say, if you help us get to these hurdles, at that point, you'll get a share. I'll give you a right today to get a share provided certain things are met. So it's a right to get a share in the future. All right. And so this also then comes into this idea of golden handcuffs that you can basically tie the performance of an employee to their ability to be able to earn as the company grows. That's that's completely right. And, and um, if, if people are putting in a more exotic option arrangement, they can put in certain hurdles and criteria. But for the most part, I, I look at this as one of the reasons I'm really uh, enjoy being involved in, in, in this the whole tech industry is uh, you're actually changing the re- fundamental relationship you have with an, a person who starts off as an employee and you're saying in the future you'll become an equity owner of the business let's go on this journey together this, this is part of your overall compensation um, and I really want you to be part of the growth story going forward and when you talk about this these sort of exotic things you actually see for instance say in the major corporate boardrooms that an executive would have 
uh, options tied to their ability to grow the business. So if you actually had a startup, you might say someone who's running sales, if you gave them sales goals and you say, okay, if you exceeded those sales goals, we'll give you X number of shares or maybe X plus Y numbers of shares because you exceeded those goals. So it gives them a goal to reach for and something that they receive in in return for reaching that goal. That's absolutely right. And I, and I think when, when options were first uh, developed uh, in, in the corporate world, it was invariably some of the larger corporations that would seek to put in place uh, sophisticated remuneration structures and incentive packages for some of their senior executives. What the startup industry and the technology industry has done phenomenally well over the last 20, 25 years, emanating, emanating out of places like America and Europe and, and really spreading here rapidly, is saying, actually, let's democratize this. Let's make equity available to the entire world workforce. I know some of the large listed corporations will have employee share ownership plans, but this is really a, I mean, a, a grassroots offering of getting everyone on board in the vision of a particular company. How, how do we really, you were talking before about golden hand, handcuffs. This is, how do we make you feel part of the journey here? Mm. And I'm very much a pains to say to people, once you get options, then your relationship changes. You are now on the pathway to becoming an equity owner in the business. And I mean, the difference is, yes, large companies have often had employee share ownership schemes, but the upside on those is is modest, right? I mean, the company will grow, you'll do all right. Whereas really what happens with the startup is you're actually sort of getting your lottery ticket. And if your number comes up with, with the rest of the company, then you actually make out very well. So it's a very different kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, you're asking people to join in the journey when when a company is still at a very embryonic stage and, and, and there's a hope and the expectation that, that the plans and the growth strategy will come off. But uh, and becomes an interesting point in terms of what founders can offer. They haven't got a lot, of, often haven't got a lot of uh, cash flow to, mm. to pay above market odds. So, you know, how do we help bridge that gap? Well, actually, let's offer you some option plans. So hopefully there's an upside story there for you because you really buy into the growth and what we're trying to achieve. All right. So I, I'm being recruited by a startup. Let's Let's say, and I rock up, do I expect options? Is that just going to be part of the deal? Do I negotiate options? I mean, let's think of this not just from the startup's point of view, but actually from the prospective employee's point of view, because this is really an exchange. How does that tend to work? Uh, you, you raise a, a great question, and this really goes to the heart of the some of the legislative changes or the rules that are that are playing their way out now under the Corporations Act and the Tax Act. And Toby's going to speak about that a little bit later. But um, I, I absolutely think now um, our former CEO said, in terms of the war for talent, that war's over. Talent won. It's <laughs> a great line. For the, for the rest of our careers, we will all be trying to retain really, really good people. Right. And I actually think the currency now going forward in a lot, a lot of industries is I expect salary and holiday leave and uh, sick leave, etc. But I also expect a potential equity interest if I work really hard and commit to working here for you. Because actually, if I'm not getting it from you, I can go somewhere else, Israel or the US or London, and I can get it there. So I think there's an expectation that this is made available. So that introduces a very important point, because that means that if you are running a startup in Australia, you have to have an employee share ownership scheme or you will not be able to compete for talent. It is it is that simple. I suspect if you haven't got one, you've got to have a good reason why, or you've got to have a story that actually we're going to put one in place down the track. And I know, you know, a number of very successful companies early on, uh, while they were still developing, it wasn't sensible to put it in place straight away. And and that's probably a distinction to make. I I think you know if you're six months into it, there may be some other stuff you've got to grapple with. Are these the right people you want on 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 the bus with you as you go forward? Mm. But I think definitely you need a story that one will come because otherwise you're offering. Uh, I think there's a big gap in that from what your competitors are doing. I think the other point just on that is that it's been in the past with the tax laws uh, and the Corporations Act rules and the cost of, of implementing a startup or mm-hmm. an ESOP for a startup, mm. it's been so much more expensive and so much more difficult. And these new rules really have uh, brought that forward so you can bring it in in a much earlier stage. So it's a hill that a startup maybe needed to climb but couldn't climb because they didn't have enough resources to climb it and yet they still need to climb it because if you want to recruit you need to have this on offer so it created a bit of a catch-22. Yeah yeah and like often it would require a startup to go and get a valuation at a really early stage and burn you know theoretically 10 to 15 grand to get a valuer Mm. to value something that's pretty hard to talk about. 
Okay. All right. So why would you issue me this option, which is essentially a promise rather than giving me a share if I'm an employee? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. The, uh, I think that the reality is uh, the founders have, have often spent 5, 10, you know, 15 years developing something. They're completely invested. Um, I, I think some of their early investors have put you know, really significant amounts of capital in or seed capital or help them to get to the next stage. As you're building out the workforce, that's a group that, that may be a little bit more transient. Uh, early on, the glue that ties them there may not be that solid yet, may not have set. And so, uh, and this is actually a really, really big point. I think sometimes startups can give away equity early on because it's it's the main currency they've got mm. and give away too much of it at an early stage mm-hmm. that that I someone asked me once well how many shares can you give out you can give giving out shares till the end of time but there's only over 100% of the company right. and if you've given away a lot of shares to someone else it can potentially have an impact on a capital raising as well so um, the real reason you would give options is you want the employees to achieve certain things sometimes markets as simple as I want you to remain around for four years mm. so that these rights under the options we'll talk about vesting in a little bit but the rights only crystallize after you've served a particular period of time. If I've given you shares on day one and you leave, under the Corporations Act, it's a lot, and under the tax laws, it's a lot harder to get them back efficiently. So there are structural reasons why I want to give you options, but also I want to make sure you're the right person. You're actually going to buy into the journey as well. So it's it's the idea that you're, you are incentivizing. You're not just doing something that will draw in talent, but you're incentivizing that talent to perform. Absolutely. I mean, the I, I love the idea of it actually being a carrot. It's never a stick. But but then this is what I'll sometimes say if I'm talking to employees as well. It's in your benefit as as you become an equity owner as the options start to crystallise that the plan makes sense. Mm. And and if I've given away three percent to someone who doesn't work out and three weeks later he leaves, well, I've got to give that 3% to someone who replaces that person. I've now got a big problem. All right. How do I make sure that my options that I'm handing out as the CEO of the startup, how do I make sure they end up where they're supposed to? Because this sounds like this is now a perennial problem. Yeah, and um, I've I got this line. You've you got to keep everyone in the tent. Um, the control of the equity is critical. Uh, and if you accept that this is a group of people who may move, may, cha- may change jobs, may get a better offer somewhere, something may come up, you always need a contractual right to get it back. Because if I'm going to incentivize you, then I expect you to be around. If you leave, I need to get it back. Mm. So how do I make sure uh, it goes to you? Well, the offer is only to you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to put it into a, a family trust structure, that's fine. But that party needs to commit to the option plan. The documents we did for the Australian Tax Office have got this built in there. It's protection for the founders and all the shareholders that essentially the company always controls what you can do with your options. You can't go and sell them to some third party independently where all of a sudden someone who may be a competitor mm-hmm. or someone who's not an employee now has an ownership interest. If I'm giving them to you because you're going to deliver for me, then I expect you to keep hold of them. And I can achieve that in the option plan itself. And oh, But a lot of this really has to do with, I think, a founder then having a very careful think up front about the kinds of work that should be rewarded in this way and the kinds of work that need to be incentivized this way. And different classes of work and different classes of rewards are incentivized differently. Absolutely. And if you think about the roles that get performed in an organization for some of the more senior people, They'll, they'll have an expectation of a, of a greater proportion of options. Mm. You know, think about a chief financial officer, chief tech, technology officer, chief information officer, etc. Um, I think as you get lowered uh, in, down in the sort of the hierarchy of, of officers and employees, it gets a little bit more homogenous. But certainly as a founder, you have to, to think about who do you want to incentivize? And I think you've probably got to have regard to market practice. The reality is most of your employees are going to be looking at what gets offered in other markets. What's the going rate? I mean, there's room to move in all of those things. And certainly when a company's a little bit more earlier on. But if one of the things you've got to offer as currency is options over shares, then you probably better be doing that with regard to what the market is doing as well. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. And during our specials like this one, we always post articles to our Tumblr. Even more so in this special episode, we're going to have a ton of documents about employee share ownership schemes and links to important information. So make sure you visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You'll also find photos of our guests. You'll find links to the previous episodes, videos, lots more. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. 
And we're back with Toby and Peter. Now we're going to start diving into the real nitty gritty of what's new about how this works. So, Toby, I want you to guide us through how the law works now. And I guess the first thing is there's a definition that has to be satisfied for what a startup is before any of this new law can be in play, right? Yeah, so there's a couple of key criteria and meeting that startup definition is uh, the first hurdle you got to jump. So uh, there's four conditions. The first is that the employer company must be an Australian resident company. The shares aren't listed, which isn't going to be a problem. The company has been incorporated within 10 years from the year of grant and is not a member of a group where a company has been incorporated for longer than 10 years. So that can be a problem if you bolt it on an entity that's been around for a while. Um, And the final one is an aggregate group turnover of the the group is less than $50 million in the financial year before the grant. Okay. And there was, I know, quite a bit of back and forth in government about where these levels were going to get set, right? Yeah. So it was in the discussions, the government was really just trying to find a black and white Mm. definition. And so it can apply equally to tech startups as it can apply to the hairdresser. Yeah, if I had a bakery, I did the same rules, right? Yeah. But... uh, the idea, I guess, with the bakery is you're not going to sell out uh, in you know, 10, 15 years. But um, so that, that particularly that group turnover threshold mm-hmm. and the 10-year um, incorporation test, it sort of put up a few barriers. So for the 10 years, it means that biotech, those sort of industries, that which have been burn. around, yeah. are, going to, are probably not going to meet this criteria. And the $50 million threshold, if, you know, if you're in a... E-commerce. I was going to say Atlassian would have passed that within what its first two or three years, right? Yeah, but and the bizarre thing is when Twitter did a fundraise and was valued at three billion, mm. its turnover was forty million dollars. <laughs> okay, so, so it works both it, ways, yeah. <laughs> right? Some companies that are exceptionally mature fall under this. Some companies that are very immature, but I mean, you'd have to think even Canva is probably starting to get close to this. Invoices to go is probably. You know, there's a there's a bunch of companies that I know about that would be near that. Uh, uh, I, I think, Mark, what it raises from a policy perspective is, um, and let me, so I think this is a great legislative initiative in terms right. of what it wanted to achieve. The, the, the legislation got there. I mean, it it changed something that was really hard to do and complicated yes. and unnecessary, difficult to making it really quite streamlined. Great initiative. I think the next conversation with the government is. Let's look at how the, the, the bright line is set right. and can we move that somewhere else? Because the involvement of the mass workforce and equity ownership and, and being invested in their particular companies, it's got to be a smart thing for the country. Right. And I'm, I'm, the last one that came up, Vino Mofo, because I know those boys were on this couch last year and they said, we want to be doing $60 million this year. And they're only yeah. a couple of years in so, this business. Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden they're out. They're out. Yeah. Okay. So. The laws are good, but they're not necessarily perfect. But that's that's also, it's good to know this, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. So what are the benefits then here? So the main benefit is that for an employee, when they get issued the option, right. they don't pay tax on grant, on vesting, on exercise. They only pay tax when they ultimately sell the shares. And that's a huge change from where it was just well, last year. Right. Okay. So it, so it is literally just completely in potential. It is not counted as an asset, I guess, in that sense for tax purposes until I actually go and sell my shares to Felix or whatever. That's correct. Lucky Felix. And the, uh, the other benefit, the other main benefit is that uh, provided the employees held the shares for right. at, sorry provided the employee uh, was granted the options 12 months or more prior to the sale of the shares then they'll get the benefit of the CGD discount regardless of whenever they exercise so they can exercise immediately prior to the sale and they'll still be able to get the 50% CGT discount now if the company goes public does that also then change it uh, not from their perspective. Like right. they've provided they they can either sell into the IPO or they can hold their shares and sell right. them down the track, but they get the benefit. I mean, th- this I guess is is a question actually for both of you. My experience was that employee share ownership schemes that use options tend to vest fully at the time that there's an initial public offering. Is that the case, or are is that not the case? 
I think it's dependent. Uh, like, there's flexibility mm-hmm. in the rules, uh, and Pete can probably talk more to this, but uh, usually the board will have uh, discretion whether to vest early. So if people, if you're on a, a over a four-year period and right. the sale happens in year three, right. the board may take the view that everyone should benefit fully and, and right. vest uh, everyone 100%. Alternatively, they may say, you know, we're only going to vest till uh, you know, pro rata. And, right. and not and the unvested options just they may roll on, or they um, may disappear. Or they may disappear. I think people are getting a little bit more sophisticated as well as as they get, or the market is as they as they get used to options. The standard model option plan that's on the um, Australian Tax Office website and the one that we help do provide it has regard to the US model, um, which is twenty five percent of the options vest after one year mm. and then the remainder over a three year period on, on a monthly basis mm-hmm. there's capacity to change that and that doesn't affect the tax rules um, I guess really the, the question is if you're incentivizing a group of people mm. to what extent can they say hey I've been here a period of time and I now own these things right. I guess the thing to think about on an exit is that should as Toby says should completely be the board's discretion because let's say you're going to sell to a trade player. Google comes along and says, I've absolutely got to buy this business. Right. You accelerate all the options and actually 40% of the workforce is going to leave. That's a big problem to sell. So the plan itself has flexibility in that if I go to sell to a Google, I can allow some of them to accelerate, but I can also replace those options for options in the acquirer. So your deal is not diminished. Google shares? I wouldn't want Google shares. Oh, my goodness. It's an example we can use. Anyone else, right. Mark, that you'd really like to? Felix is co if that really works. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There was a great example. Uh, Jeff Pfeiffer talked about this when he, he was interviewed uh, recently, and he was talking about when they sold Crashlytics. Right. And the company had only been around 18 months, and they fully vested everyone when they sold to Twitter, and even though it was a four-year four year vesting, and everyone stayed on. Okay, so that's a that's a that's a very. I think that's probably a thank you from the yeah. employees. All right, what are are there rules about the kinds of options that qualify under the new laws? Yeah, so this is the second major hurdle that you've got to jump over to to get into uh, these concessional rules, and there's four main criteria. The first is that the exercise price of the options has to be at least equal to the market value of the shares at the date of the grant and. For those, uh, I realise we're on a podcast that I'm putting inverted commas around market value, and there's a specific definition and and some uh, some concessional rules for valuing those. Okay, so in other words, to. you're not allowed to sell me shares, sell me options on the cheap, is what it is. Yeah, roughly. but it, it is uh, the the safe harbour concessional rules that the ATO have come up with, mm. um, particularly for tech startups, are mm. are, um, are very favourable. Um, and they're very simple to apply, uh, and they should should actually come out with a pretty favourable result. So that's the first one. The second requirement is that the options are options to acquire ordinary shares in the company. The third is that immediately after the grant, the employee will not hold an interest in more than 10% of the shares in the company, assuming that all of his or her shares or and options are vested and are exercised. So the problem here is that it you can't issue options to founders under these rules. Okay. And so that, I think, is the next battleground. Right. And the final one is uh, that the options and shares can't be sold for three years unless the employee ceases employment or either, A, the ATO exercises its discretion to waive that requirement, or B, the company undertakes a restructure and... And the sale would be... And you swap your options for options in the acquirer. Okay, yeah. I mean, there's a level of kind of complexity. We're getting a little bit into the weeds. I think the key takeaway is the valuation exercise at the start of issue is much simpler now. Effectively, the legislation has taken away the need for an independent valuation which takes away $20,000 of costs that really didn't do very much at all. Okay, so how do I... I'm the startup person. I'm going to do this. How do I value my company? What are the steps now? So there's uh, there's two different ways, um, and it depends um, if you fall within, hopefully, the first concession, um, which is for startups that are less than seven years old and have raised less than $10 million in capital in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. In that, if you meet those criteria, then you can work on what's like an, a net tangible assets valuation. 
And the way that works is uh, you calculate the net tangible assets of the company. So you're ignoring your IP, you're ignoring any goodwill. You reduce that NTA by the return required uh, by the liquidation preference on any preference shares that have been issued to investors. So with VC investors, they'll often often have a liquidation shares. preference. Right. They get they get their money back first. So you take that out, uh, and then whatever the result is, you divide that by the number of ordinary shares on issue. So for tech startups in particular, yeah, that that leaves very little. Right? It leaves cash. Yeah. Right? Yeah, um, which a tech startup is not going to have a lot yeah. of if it's doing its job well, right? Yeah, so you know, companies that have raised um, Series A, right? Uh, you know, with liquidation preferences um, in their pref shares that are on issue, uh, they're burning cash. There's going to be if you on that net tangible assets, there's going to actually often less cash to pay out the pref shareholders than there is uh, of anything else. So you're left with actually. A market value of zero. <laughs> so, so that, you can really price the options yeah, inexpensively. Yeah. So this, and so you can issue options for a one cent exercise mm-hmm. price, and you'll meet that criteria. So this is like the bare minimum. And then there's, but there's sort of two competing dynamics there. One is, do you want to issue uh, options with a one cent valuation, with effectively a one cent valuation, mm-hmm. or do you actually want to set it at, you know, what would be the implied valuation so that uh, the employees only share in the upside from there. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I just wanted to bring you some updates following our VR special. Eddie and Sarab of Now VR have released the first version of their Relaxation VR app. It's now available for both iOS and Android. All you need is a Google Cardboard to feel the serenity. There's a link on our Tumblr that goes through to that. Now, in addition, our guest host, Michaela Ledwich, for the VR special, she's written a concise and easy-to-digest overview of the numerous VR markets that are starting to emerge. So you'll find a link to that as well on our Tumblr, along with a link to a register article on the past and future of VR that was written by me. So check it out. Okay, we're back with Toby Eggleston and Peter Dunn, and we are now deep in our discussion of employee share schemes. All right, Peter, something that we really do need to talk about is if I'm just forming the company, if I'm incorporating, do I need to make sure I don't do something or do something to make sure that it's easy for me to be able to offer employee share schemes? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I uh, the, the the in this case, uh, simpler is actually a little bit a little bit better. Uh, let's leave aside individual tax circumstances, but uh, a simple proprietary company that can be set up for about seven hundred dollars off the, off the shelf um, makes a lot of sense. I think in terms of what people sometimes do wrong is that they make it a little bit too exotic and complicated. Um, the real critical element here is if the company goes well and you want to get external investors, they will look for a simple structure. Mm -hmm. Does the company own all its intellectual property? If you're putting the intellectual property into a separate company, and sometimes people will have read about about, about that, that's completely fine as long as the parent owns a company that owns all of the intellectual property. If I'm an investor, I want to know I'm getting the whole lot. So a relatively simple structure makes sense. This bit, I think, is critical. If you're issuing options to someone, Mm. it's options over shares in the top company. You don't want ownership interests at the lower level because all of a sudden that starts getting structurally harder. Hang on, can I get money out? Do I have the ability to influence the group? So wherever the founders hold equity, Mm -hmm. that's where the VCs will come in. That's where the options should be. Okay. All right. We're now getting into this where we have a, a company up and running. We have some investors. We have the founders. And now we're starting to get into employee share ownership via options. And this all is presented in something called a cap table. Do we want to sort of explain what that is for the audience? Yeah, it's, and it's a really critical thing for investors to look at. They'll want to understand the business. Uh, and when they get sold on uh, the, the beauty of what the business is going mm. to become, and then they'll want to know, hang on, Tell me who or who has an ownership interest. Who are the people who've got rights to the company? And you need to be able to tell that really simply and clearly. 
These are all the people who are shareholders. And these are the only people who've got a right to get shares in the future. If that's a hard question to answer, then you're going to scare a lot of people off. And if you think about it... Why would that be a hard question to answer? Uh, and this is where you can kind of get it wrong because early in the early days, people give away equity too, too easily. And then there's the guy who was going to help me out. So I gave him 20%, but I don't know where he's gone. He didn't really perform on that, which he said he was going to do, but he's got 20%. I can't quite get that back. I mean, I've literally seen this and it's terrible where you get legitimate founders who mm. are just being generous. They give away equity too early to people who are not caught by a shareholders agreement. The minute you lose control of your equity, then you're going to waste a lot of money. But more importantly, you potentially scare off investors. They need to know if they're putting money into a structure, they need to know 100% of the owners and that that company owns all the business assets. All right. Now, I've got the cap table and I know that cap tables can get long. <laughs> I'm sure we've all, I've heard about some very interesting length cap tables. I suspect that Uber's cap table, because it's still a private company, is interesting and Baroque, companies like that. Um, when we're talking about giving these options to employees or granting these options to employees, where are these shares coming from? Where is this equity coming from? Is there a magical pudding pool of shares that they're coming from? Uh, it's the it's it, this this bit is kind of important. It's the company itself. Uh, I think all the the beneficial tax treatment that we spoke about, the ease of dealing, it really should be the company, and it raises an interesting point: who bears the cost of the employee share option pool. Mm. So if there are 10 shares on issue, Mark, you and I hold five each, mm -hmm. but we want to give two to, to Toby. Mm -hmm. Should we share the cost of that equally? And this becomes an argument or a discussion with external investors. And they sometimes say, no, the founder should bear the cost of that. So the employee equity ownership would only dilute the founders. And I think that's crazy. Uh, ultimately, if you've got an engagement... Well, you're penalizing the founders, right? Correct, correct. There's, there's, there's a distortionate impact. The founders yeah. bear a greater cost. But actually, if the employees well, are incentivized and jumping out of bed in the morning and going really crazy to grow the company, then the institutional investor gets the benefit of that as well. Correct. So they should bear the cost. Correct. Well, I mean, yeah, you'd want, you'd want a situation where the a pain is commensurate to the gain, where everyone is, is paying through dilution. And I mean, dilution is... It is interesting the way some investors, particularly investors who are less sophisticated, will see dilution as absolutely to be avoided. And I have seen so many startups in this country, which will have, I mean, the classic dentist from Torak as the investor who refuses to have dilution on their shares because they see it as being a diminution of their value rather than a way to grow their value. When you have that kind of problem with an investor how do you work around that i mean if if the investors are insisting that the founders take the hit how do you frame it for them yeah the, the i mean there's some great dentists in turak let's not beat up on those <laughs> not, no no no, no I was, I was, but where i was going to go but but if, if i'm if i'm a, a, v, a us vc or an australian vc and i'm investing in your company and you've got the great ip and i look at your original angel investor base at this point i mean those guys have provided great capital to get you to this point but they're not providing much else. And I really don't want them to be in the way of things. So if those guys are saying we can't be diluted, right. well, all it means is you're going to get diluted a lot, lot more. So, um, and I'm completely with you. I will always say 2% of a company worth $10 billion is worth a lot more than 100% of a company worth $10, right? So yeah. people have got to get their head around the fact that dilution actually as the company grows is not the worst thing in the world. It's, a, it's the it's bigger pie. It's the best pie. thing in it's the world. The, it's the bigger pie type argument, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, unless it's being done for, and, and, you know, there are examples where it's being done for nefarious purposes, right? But if it's being done for the right reasons and the founders are making that case to the investors, then you're absolutely right. Okay, but that brings up another question, which is when you're planning for the future as the founders and as the principal investors of the company, how big is the option pool for the employees who are coming on board? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. Um, it's fun, funnily enough, people tend to uh, land at a round number. Uh, it, it's five percent if you on the on the stingier side. To be honest, ten percent is I think close to the middle. Twenty percent is really generous. So it, it's 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 a picking a round number that you're comfortable with. But importantly, it's recognizing that the option pool may need to grow as we get bigger. I mean, mm. if you know, you you talked about some of the startup companies here. I mean, Scott and Mike started Atlassian. It's well documented in the back of a, a garage, and 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 look at the size of their workforce now. So the option pool will need to grow as the company gets bigger. 
the discussion we just had on dilution, that's not a bad thing. Early on, the negotiations with the VC will be how much am I allowed to grant to employees without your consent? Right. And this comes back to the whole dilution point. Whenever you're issuing equity to someone, even angel investors, I don't think anyone should block your ability to raise capital or should say, I don't ever get diluted. I mean, you know, let, let's use an Atlassian as an example. Imagine if someone said, I've got 10% of Atlassian for the rest of time. All that does is dilute everyone else. Yeah. So um, to my mind, what's a reasonable approach if you're an angel investor, it's great you're on board. If, as we do future capital raisings, you can participate as well. But if we raise more money and you don't contribute, your equity stake will go down, but the pie is bigger. Mm. So, I mean, it comes it comes back to that, I guess, sort of natural logic. Do we are there any sort of public statistics around where startups tend to set the option pool? I mean, you're talking about round numbers: five percent, ten percent, twenty percent. Is this something that's very much sort of about the founders, or is it something that's very much about the industry? I think it's more about the industry. And if you look on the US blogs, mm. uh, and we'll post a couple of the links there, but uh, there is a huge amount of detail that you can drill down. Um, and people have built complex models to work out exactly you know, how much each engineer then each uh, higher tier gets based on proportion of uh, salary and multiplied that, that out. And it's so there's a lot you can read. Um, but I think in the early days, it's 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 what you can negotiate, but around that five to ten percent. Right. I actually, I, there was a question I'd meant to ask earlier, and I need to ask both of you: Does the grant of employee options affect the twelve twenty rule for ASIC? Yeah, and, and actually, we've used this expression earlier today about the next battleground. Mm. Um, I'm a, I'm a pains to say the legislative changes for the tax regime were great from a policy perspective. The at the moment, the under the Corporations Act. I think the legislation needs to, to catch up in the way the tax rules have changed. Um, if you offer a share or an option to anyone in Australia, that offer needs to be exempt or you need a prospectus or another offer document. So this is a significant burden for startup companies or indeed for any companies. If I'm issuing equity to you, if I'm not exempt, then I need to spend a lot of money on an offer document. Mm. Now, ASIC a great regulator, and they're concerned to ensure appropriate protections here. You mentioned 2012. Mm. That's one of the standard carve-outs. So under the Corporations Act, if I'm offering or issuing, sorry, to 20 people in a 12-month period, mm. and I don't raise more than $2 million, then that's exempt, no offer document. However... If I'm a growing company, and a lot of the companies you mentioned are growing really, really rapidly, and I'm mm. doing very well, mm. hang on, I need to put 40 people on. You tell me I can't issue to the next 20 without spending a lot of money doing an offer document, and I'm a little bit concerned about that. One other thing you will have heard about, or some of your listeners will have heard about, Mark, is the offer information statement regime. It allows you to do a short-form offer document really quickly. It's kind of a great initiative. The problem with it is you need to lodge on a public da database your audited accounts. Now, all of a sudden, your competitors have got access to your audited accounts. Then You're not seeing their accounts. So there's a lot of people in the startup community or the expansion capital industry are saying, hang on, that's that's a great initiative other than the fact that I've got to lodge my audited accounts where my competitors can read them. So I'm, I'm not cool with that. How, how do we work through that? So I think there's discussions going on at Department of Treasury at the moment. They're very much uh, interested in trying to come up with a, a solution that works for, for the startup industry. But there's probably still a bit of work to be done there. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be back with our final segment in just a moment. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. Now, as you've been hearing Toby and Peter go through, they've been referencing documents. Every one of the documents they're referencing, we will make sure it will be posted on our Tumblr. So please come and visit at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Again, all of those documents, photos, videos, links to the past episodes, it is a treasure trove of information for Australian startups at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. We're back. It's the home stretch of our deep dive into employee share schemes. Now we have learned the what, the why, the how of employee share ownership schemes with Toby and Peter. What we're going to do is we're going to take what we've learned and we're going to put it into practice. So our final guest on this episode is Damien Williams. Damien is the CFO of CultureAmp, which is a Melbourne-based startup that specializes in improving employee engagement and recruiting, but 
Damien, welcome. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about what Culture Amp does? Thank you. Yes, uh, I think engagement was the key word you got there. So we're a HR tech platform that mm -hmm. we focus uh, on the engagement problem. So uh, our software creates the feedback loops that are required for companies to build culture-first organizations. All right, good. So how old is Culture Amp now? Culture Amp, uh, the, the current... the. The technology that we're using now that is, has gained traction is about four years old, five right. years old. Um, this is the fourth iteration that the founders originally had, and um, you know it's the typical startup uh, process. You know, iterate, fail, try again, and uh, the, the fourth platform uh, got a lot of traction, so it's working great. Yeah. Okay, all right. So, and the company has just gotten a Series B funding round of what was it like eleven million dollars? Uh, Ten million US. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That Series uh, A was six point three, so total funding all up of sixteen point three million. Which over. for an Australian startup is like a gazillion dollars, and yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So yeah. it's that's very good. Okay, you've been with the firm since around the time of the Series A, and you guided them into an employee share scheme. Do you want to sort of take us through what you had to do? Sure. Um, I guess uh, I, I joined just after Series A in March uh, 2015, and as part of uh, the external funding, the investors wanted to make sure that were uh, a certain amount of options set aside for us to be able to grow fast with great talent and options. So your outside investors actually came and said you need this. Yes, that yeah, is fantastic. part of the shareholders. Yeah, it's it's really critical in terms of growing. Like I said, growing fast. Right. Um, and part of that is growing your headcount fast getting product releases out quicker, engineering talent, uh, we all talk about it. Uh, it's a challenge for everyone. Mm. Um, and even though we were funded, it's still Series A. You can't compete with the big boys. Right. Um, so you need to be able to sell the vision of the organization, find... Um, and sell the upside. And sell the upside. So coming in uh, as an employee at, at Series A, right in that first batch of options and early, um, is really significant in terms of the potential upside. Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you a story about that. Um, one of our um, early um, recruits in San Francisco, he was the first um, HR analyst for Facebook. And he's been through Facebook and Square, mm -hmm. um, both organizations listed. He was he came in, he's told a story, he came in around sort of um, E and F rounds for those organizations. And he, he said to me, I, I, I look back at uh, when we listed and all those guys who were in an A round, Series mm, A, mm. and saw what happened to their lives. And, and, you know, he had a few people he was talking to and he chose Culture Amp because um, he really believed that we could make this happen next year, just like our uh, investors. And also because he's like, ah, they're at Series A. This is, this is the time. Yeah, so that it's a really powerful story, particularly for myself and everyone in Australia, really. Um, it's not widely known. It's not something that happens in our ecosystem a lot. Um, here's a guy who's been through it twice mm. at two big firms who IPO'd. Mm. Um, and he, for him, it was significant. Being at E-Round or A-Round, it's, it's, it's a huge difference. Okay. All right. So now it's 2015. You've been invited by the board to start thinking about this. What did you actually need to do? I needed to get some help. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, um, it was really interesting. The journey took six months. Right. Now, the first three months was preparing for the Australian tax office to bringing the new rules so okay so what, so it's a moving target while it, you're trying to do this it was like what are we going to do when this happens um but if it doesn't what are we going to do this is the a, a and b scenario um obviously the a scenario the best scenario came off um and then as we pulled the trigger that was actually the second half the the second three months was the really interesting part because when you're going to execute your strategy and in this case we had a strategy to execute for options um, you un that's when you uncover things and you start problem solving. And the second three months was all about uncovering the complexity on the U.S. side. So my story is really interesting because... All right, so how is the on. company... Org is it incorporated in both domains as an organization? Exactly, and that's the interesting part. So as we're an Australian company and the new tax regime that's come out is is actually really fantastic. It, it was polarized and so simple for, an, for Australian companies but 
that big asterisk on that is Australian companies who only have Australian employees. So we have a California C Corp. Right. And we had... Um, is that probably, 100% owned by the Australian Corp? Yes, it's, it's a subsidiary. So we've still got a Topco. Right. Um, all the options are being issued in the Topco, uh, the Australian top company. Sorry. That was, that yeah. was my it's, next question yeah. because Peter has already warned us about that. All yeah, right. and that's where the IP is held. So that's where, right. you know, the true value in the, in the shares is being okay, issued. Okay, you've ticked all the boxes company. correctly. Yeah. Good. But those rules, those ta- new tax rules only apply to Australian employees. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're Culture Amp. You know, we're building a Culture First company because that's also what we're selling. So it was hugely important for us to do this in a way that's, that sets an example of what's possible. That's, and we, we go through that in huge detail for everything we do and every action we take mm-hmm. to build a Culture First company because we're learning and we help others learn. Um, and, and this was just dog fooding. If you're about culture, then it's dog fooding. You, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I didn't think. Uh, you know, I thought we dog fooded for tech releases, but not uh, not for employee for share, share yeah. option plans. But you do it for everything, basically. Yeah. And what we learned was that actually the the U.S. is much more advanced in terms. of They dealt with this a lot before. They got a yeah. much deeper structure, and they've approached it. Um, um, and where they're at now is developed over a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and more importantly, it's it's linked quite closely to the SEC. So they've you can see they've got uh, they've had their hand in all of this. Right. Um, and as we continue to do this now, I can see that ASIC in Australia still haven't quite caught up with mm. what the tax office has done because all the regulations around us issuing these securities, they're they're kind of saying, hey. You need you need to have an Australian financial services license. Well, you won't start. We're a tech startup. It's, it's not going to happen. So then the question is, oh, so deal with perpetual trustees, and they they say, well, it's going to cost you twenty plus odd thousand dollars a year just to administer it, and we've got fifty employees, and it's like that doesn't make sense for a startup as well. Like, right. come on, like, so there's still a lot to happen, but. Um, Someone's got to take the first step. See, and the you're the whipping has. boy here, yeah, really, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, they, they say, what you got, can identify pioneers by the arrows in their back. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Toby laughs there. Thanks for that. <laughs> it's true. Um, but, but, Damien, presumably amongst your Australian employees, US employees, given the nature of that which you do and you hold dear, what you're trying to do is have an equal playing field. That's exactly uh, right. And, and the complexity of managing different jurisdictions, tax regimes, and but being able to say to someone who fulfills one role in one market, and someone the similar role in another market actually were treating you the same must have been a level of complexity. Absolutely. And that's that's the culture first part. How do we do this in a culture first way? And for me personally, it's also great that I was leading this on behalf of the organization because I'm an employee and participating. So I can I try and bring balance. It's like as an employee, I wouldn't be happy with this. So I need to find a commercial outcome right. that's great, that's right for the business and the investors, but actually that, that I can put my hand on heart in front of the employees and say, this is the best outcome. This that we is the right setting. Yeah. And I, I feel like we got to that. The, if there's any differences, it's really in local, um, the local personal income tax, which we all agree, look, that's, some, that's something we can't influence. Yeah. So everything up to that point, how it impacts you personally from a tax perspective, um, we've done everything we can. All right. So now that you have something implemented across the organization and presumably there are option grants that have been going out has that does that change an employee's relationship to culture app once they have an option grant uh i think definitely yes i i honestly think the first thing that it changes it's because when you're when you're recruiting and you're mm-hmm. making this commitment, it's it's very much a verbal commitment. Like the paperwork comes later, mm-hmm. and for a lot of us, it you know it took at least six months for those early people to see what was committed. So um, the relationship is it builds trust. And again, coming back to being culture first and what culture does, you know, if you're going to build great culture, you've got to build trust in the organisation. So when it when it goes out, when we have go from the conversations to people starting and they get the paperwork, they read through it, we talk them through what it means for them um, as much as we can without giving them personal advice, um, then it's it, it, it's that first stepping stone to building trust. Um, and you build that trust between mm. the organisation and the employee and the employee gives back like the work we get from everyone and the commitment to the vision is so much stronger. So... There's, I guess, always this thing now around employee options have a vest date, and it's generally four years for options. And at some point, your employees, your star employees will vest, and how do you keep them around after that? 
gentlemen. And so I'm throwing that question open because that's that's sort of our, our, our closing question here. We've sort of covered the whole ground. If you've got it and you're working and it works, is that it? Is that your only shot? Or do you have to find some other way to make life good for them? I think uh, just coming back to the, the point we were talking about earlier that you have your option pool, you don't have to issue your option pool all in one shot and you, you can delve it out over time and so you can make top-up options right. and that's also an important thing about how different people contribute during the journey because you may think someone's going to blow the you know, the doors off early on and they get a, a reasonable option ground up front but they don't perform that well so uh, you can bring someone else up mm-hmm. along the way yeah um, certainly from the option perspective that's the case but actually again I'm getting off the topic of this podcast which is the share option plan but it's one tool in your toolbox, mm. these options, you know, you, you, it's, it's a journey. Like as an employee, I'm, I'm motivated and anchored to these options, but I also have, you know, I have a personal career that I want to grow and I have my own aspirations. So you, you got to deal with those and you, you match everything together. So what's the journey that Culture Amp is going on? How does that match uh, to the journey I want to go on in my career? Um, and how do the options sort of anchor towards that overall journey and everyone growing the total value of the organization in their own unique way um, and collectively getting value from it at the end? Gentlemen, this has been an amazing journey. We started out from what is an option and we ended up with this is what an option does when it's working right, not just for the company, but for the people in the company. Toby, Peter, Damien, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you. No problem. Thanks. I want to close with a little story. This is back in 1989, and I am an engineer working at a startup called Shiva Corporation. I was the second engineer hired who wasn't a founder. It was like 11 people when I started working there. And I remember one day I had been working there about a year, and the founder, Dan, came into my office and said to me, you know, we're giving you a raise because you're working out as an employee and we're giving you 50,000 shares as an option. And I had no idea that this was even going to come. I think even back then, you know, this is almost 30 years ago, there was still a bit of a rarity in technology, but they, they happened. And I very happily worked at Shiva for another couple of years. And then I left to do my own startup in virtual reality. And at the time, I was saving all my money for my own startup. And I had an option to exercise, would have been a few thousand dollars to buy all of those shares. And I didn't. I used the money on my own startup. And that startup, although it was very good for establishing me in virtual reality, didn't make any money. But those shares, well, that company was bought by Intel and went public. And those shares would have been worth about $1.5 million. And that's a singular lesson right there because I basically walked away from a million dollars Series A level shares in a startup. So if you get offered those, take care of them because they're a big deal. Thanks to Felix Wormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is consistently wonderful to listen to. Thanks to Peter Dunn. Toby Eggleston and Damian Williams for taking the time to come on to our show. We're going to be back in a fortnight with an exploration into the changing face of media. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.